On this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, the supply chain problems that data could solve and devastation coming from another continuing resolution. It's Thursday, May 11th, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose, back from Soft Week in Tampa. The next episode of the FedGov Today television show this Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 in Washington features coverage from Soft Week. My guests include the commander of Marine Forces Special Operations Command, Major General Matt Trollinger, and the chief technology officer of Central Command, Skylar Moore. If you miss the TV show or any episodes of the podcast, you can always find them on demand at fedgovtoday.com. The Defense Logistics Agency says its supplier base shrunk 22% between 2016 and 2022. DLA leadership released supply chain data at the Supply Chain Alliance Conference and Exhibition in Richmond earlier this month. Tara Murphy-Doherty is Chief Executive Officer of Gavini. She's former Chief of Staff for Global Strategic Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Tara, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. These supply chain challenges that folks are running into all across the department are coming from a variety of sources. What are the big ones that you're seeing, especially as they pertain to modernization? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Francis. It's great to be here. The supply chain challenges don't seem to be going away. And I think what we're seeing now is a combination of supply chain issues with manufacturing pressures and even depletions in American manufacturing in combination with what has happened over time in the defense industry to all kind of coalesce into what I would argue at this point is a production and capacity crisis. That actually, I mean, that sounds bad, of course, and we're reading about that all the time because it's impacting so much of what we're trying to support in Ukraine. But it also, to your point, actually impacts what we're trying to do with military modernization as well. And one of the dots that I think is really important to connect, and I'm sure we'll unwind a bit here, is the fact that we're looking at these issues and how they're uh, creating challenges in areas like munitions. And we're reading about shortfalls in um, you know, the production of black powder for explosives. And at the same time, we're seeing reports come out about how far behind the United States is relative to China, our greatest global competitor, in areas of emerging technology as well. And so these lapses and the lags that we're facing, whether it's old-fashioned manufacturing or it's research and development in advanced technologies, are all coming together in a pretty uh, serious way right now. What's the navigation path ahead in your view? Because you and I have talked before, there are 10,000 ideas out there about bringing new technology into the government uh, and and into the Department of Defense in particular. Uh, DIU was created especially for that there at uh, TechNet Cyber this week talking about uh, those issues and and evangelizing for the work that they're doing. And yet it seems like we're still talking about the same kinds of subjects. It doesn't seem like there's as much traction as I think anybody in the department and frankly, anybody in industry really wants. Absolutely. I, I strongly agree with that. And I think a lot of people, to your point, both in government and out would agree. You know, it's a positive move, certainly, that we saw just the other day, the announcement of a new director for DIU. 
looks like a, I don't know him personally, but looks like a very credentialed, experienced person who has both military experience, understands the department, but also has spent some time in the technology sector. So that's exciting. But And we saw the position be elevated, the DIU director position be elevated back to reporting to the Secretary of Defense, which, of course, is where it started. And then it had moved sort of down the chain. So two positive movements. And I'll just call out one major gap that remains that ties into the lack of progress or different activities to drive better outcomes that you're calling out which is the clearer mission, or I should say clarity around the mission for DIU in a way that differentiates it from all the other incubators and accelerators that exist within DOD's innovation ecosystem, of which that net number is nearly 50. DIU has a special unique role to play, or I would argue it should, and it should be tied as the first entity, the overarching entity for this innovation ecosystem, the element that does report directly to the secretary, I believe it has greater responsibility for solving these larger challenges that go beyond identification of, you know, innovative companies and attracting them to the DOD ecosystem. Lots of innovative companies in the United States want to work with DOD. Uh, So that's an area where a lot of progress has been made. It's also an area where a lot of different, uh, you know, incubators and accelerators are focused. So let's get DIU, the, you know, the big dog in the ring anyway, pointed at the harder problems. And I think moving the needle in a bigger way. How much of your, uh, how much do you think DIU should be the actual incubator and how much should their role be traffic cop to say, okay, you have this and the one service needs that. So here's the people to talk to there and that kind of thing. What's, what's that ideal balance look like in your view? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I do think that DIU has the um, responsibility for having the broadest perspective and the most, um, you know, the way we talk about it in the department is really the joint perspective to a certain degree. This is such a good example of where there is actually a very easy solution through data that simply hasn't been put in place yet in the department. And this is a great example of something that the DIU director ought to say, this is in my 90 day plan, which is to, actually put in place the data streams that provide all of these different incubators and accelerators with access to information about two things. Number one, what DOD is doing today already in the R&D space or within its RDT&E portfolio. And then secondarily, what's happening out in the American economy in terms of market activity in areas of technologies that matter. We know based on what Undersecretary Shu has defined what the portfolio portfolio of critical technologies to DOD are. So let's use data to track what's going on and share that data commonly among all of these incubators. That's a very tractical pr- problem that DIU could solve, uh, but for what I think are pretty straightforward bureaucratic reasons hasn't been addressed. You know, it's interesting too. You point out Secretary Shu's 14 technologies and what I haven't pursued and probably should is how that uh, has uh, kind of uh, filtered down to the services, whether the services have adopted, okay, here's seven of these that are really important to us. Here's 
10 of these that are really important to us and so on um, or whether they've just decided we're going to go all after all 14 of these and what the implication of that is for the silos that everybody knows exists in the Pentagon. Right. I haven't gotten the sense that's been done either. Um, I do think the critical technology areas were put together in a thoughtful way that almost give the department an investment thesis. You know, the way that those 14 subjects were separated into categories that align with where there is strong overlap with commercial applications or where there's almost no overlap with commercial applications essentially tells you or provides a roadmap for how do we go about incentivizing activity, research, development, uh, and ultimately productization in each of these areas. But I don't know that that has been picked up by the services or the elements within the department that are responsible for either working with dual-use companies where there is strong commercial applications or where we're saying, okay, this needs DOD R&D funding because you're not going to get venture for example, to invest in this thing that has only military applications. That's the follow through that we really need. And I would agree, I haven't seen yet. One of the things that's really encouraging about the appointment of the new DIU director, we talk about people all the time on this program. You and I have talked about the people that are necessary to drive these kinds of innovations uh, on a number of occasions. And I quote from a NextGov story, uh, right after the appointment of Doug Beck, uh, is currently Apple's vice president of worldwide education, health, and government. It's really a, a positive sign that somebody like that would want to leave a company like Apple and come to work for the federal government because I guarantee you he's making a lot less money as a DIU director than he was probably making at Apple. So the fact that there are people who want to do these jobs and are willing uh, to come into government and do them is still is very encouraging, I think. Absolutely, it's encouraging. And I suspect the difficulty of finding someone who has that kind of a background like Doug has and is willing to uh, not only take on the uh, the hit on compensation that, you know, let's be honest, I, I'm sure that's right, as you suggested, but also the demands of the job. We we know how tough the these Pentagon roles are. And fundamentally, if you're reporting to the secretary, even if you split your time in Mountain View, California, you have a Pentagon role. So those are significant challenges and, and a tough sell. So it is great to see someone with such a, you know, a high caliber of background and experience. I would hope also that his willingness to make this leap is an indication that he has a point of view and an agenda, uh, because that's the other thing that's critical in terms of getting things done is you've got to come in knowing exactly what you want to accomplish um, or the bureaucracy will eat you alive. Tara, terrific conversation as always. I'm grateful for your time today. Thanks. Absolutely. You can read more about the supply chain situation in the Pentagon, including DLA Supply Chain Alliance Conference, in today's show notes at FedGovToday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. The Air Force will follow the zero trust strategy the Defense Department recently released. That strategy is supposed to be fully operational by 2027. 
Wanda Jones-Heath is the Principal Cyber Advisor of the Air Force. In this highlight of my exclusive conversation with her on this week's FedGov Today TV show, I asked her about the factors that drive the evolution of the threat landscape. As I always say, the adversary gets a vote, mm-hmm. and their vote is loud and clear. Yeah. Um, we continue to see the capabilities, um, and so our job is to make sure that we're able to defend those. Mm-hmm. You know, that we detect them early, uh, figure out what, what they're doing, and then be able to respond in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. How has that, how has what they're doing changed? What is, what are you seeing inside the Air Force as far as the ways they're trying to get into the network, what they're trying to do if they're able to get in? The presumption now, of course, is that they're there and you have to be ready to defend against them. Uh, absolutely. You know, we, we recognize they're there. Right. You know that, you know, the fallacy is if someone says they're not, um, that's definitely not true. Um, They are aggressive. They are moving. Uh, They are attacking uh, things that we know are challenges. You know, cyber hygiene is something I preach all the time. And if we don't do the basics, then we've given the adversary the key Mm -hmm. to move laterally, to take data, to cause disruption to challenge um, the things that we hold near and dear. Mm -hmm. And so we need to just make sure that we are continually looking and continually improving innovation, new tools, things that we can say, hey, we need to stay focused just like they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, The CIO of the Air Force, Lauren Knausenberger, was on the FedGov Today podcast a couple of weeks ago. We talked about zero trust. Huge topic of conversation at this event, Uh, Wanda. What are you seeing in zero trust and how is the Air Force working to coordinate with DOD CIO on the zero trust strategy that's just out? I can tell you that the DAF is all in. Right. You know, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not you fix one thing and voila, we are zero trust compliant. Right. You know, it starts with your architecture and knowing how and the things that we need to change and then focus on our identity. You know, identity is the key to uh, being successful with zero trust. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to assume that, um, you know, that adversary is there, you know, continually say you have access and you continue that access. Mm-hmm. And so we we are following what deal. D is, is mandating uh, by 2027. Yes. Uh, we have investments. Secretary Kendall has put the money on the table for us to be able to do that. Um, we have a full team with a strategy and concept. And so we're moving out. A highlight of my conversation with Wanda Jones-Heath, Principal Cyber Advisor of the Air Force on the FedGov Today television show from TechNet Cyber. You can watch the entire conversation and all the FedGov Today TV shows on demand at FedGovToday.com. The Secretary of the Air Force says his service and the rest of the military needs timely appropriations to deliver effectively on its mission. Frank Kendall explained why on FedGov Today TV last week. You can watch that episode on demand at FedGovToday.com. Before the House Armed Services Committee, Secretary Kendall answered a question from the committee chairman, Congressman Mike Rogers, about the impact of a continuing resolution on the priorities he laid out in his testimony. Well, in a word, it's devastating. Um, we've gotten used to having a one quarter or so continuing resolution, and we've made some adjustments in our planning to take that into account, contract in particular. But the impact is significant. And as we enter uh, more completely into an era of uh, competition with, with a strategic competitor like China, it, it's even more significant. I mentioned the numbers of new starts that we have. We can't start those programs until we have authorization and appropriations. 
Um, we were effectively giving away uh, a significant block of time to our adversaries to move forward while we are standing still. I, I used a quote the other day from the movie Casablanca, where people come to Casablanca to sit and wait and wait and wait. We're waiting now. Uh, we did the work to define the operational imperative uh, requirements and priorities. We spent most of the last year getting that into the budget and getting it over here to be submitted to the Congress, and now we're waiting for the Congress. All of that is time that we could use to move forward potentially. Uh, CR has that impact. It has impact on our people uh, across the board. The pay raise that I talked to you about, we would probably find some way to keep that going, but we'd have to fund it out of other things. So there are a number of impacts, and overall, I'll just repeat, it's devastating to the department. General Brown. I'd echo exactly what the, what the Secretary Kennedy said. It's, it's devastating. If you have a pacing challenge, it's hard to uh, stay ahead of your pacing challenge when you continue to take breaks because of continuing resolutions. Yeah. We've got to keep the momentum going. It not only impacts what we do for uh, our operational uh, capabilities, it impacts the defense industrial base and all the work with our, uh, uh, our partners uh, there, but it also impacts our airmen and our families because it, as we start to look at each uh, summer cycle for, for moves and pay raises and those kinds of things, um, a lot of uncertainty uh, for them. Our, our job as leaders is to provide them some level of certainty in a very uncertain world. Yep. And uh, so that, that creates a, a huge challenge for us, and we want to continue to uh, you know, get the funding on time so we can actually uh, not lose buying parks. We lose for this, uh, for the Department of the Air Force, it'd be about $9 billion of lost buying power in addition to the new starts that Secretary Kendall highlight. Yeah. General Sossman, it's obvious since you get a, would get a 15% increase, what it would mean to you. Can you give us a couple of specifics, new start programs that would be impeded by CR? Uh, sir, it would be devastating. Let me just start there. Uh, if we, one, had to go back to FY22 levels, because that doubly compounds uh, the increases we've gotten over the last couple of years, or could get over the next couple of years, uh, it cripples the effort of the Space Force. Um, the counter space capabilities that we are putting in place to both pivot to a more resilient architecture to protect our mission set, as well as be able to conduct full spectrum operations that creates deterrence against our uh, pacing challenge, those mostly are still in new start status. And so that I am losing the time and efforts that are going into that to be able to respond to a contested space domain under a CR. Right. Well, you know, <clears throat> we need to stop calling a CR a continuing resolution and recognize it's a Chinese resolution. That is the only entity that benefits if Congress does not do its work and get spending bills passed in a timely manner. Uh, General Brown and General Saltzman, if y'all had the resources, uh, which technologies would you move to the left to help you uh, close the gap between what we and, and Chinese, uh, the Chinese need to, uh, would be doing in Taiwan? Well, Chairman, I, I would look at uh, several things. Uh, you know, part of it is, is just the capacity as we start to bring in um, uh, some of our new aircraft. I'd also add in uh, aspects of munitions because that's an area that we have not collected, you know, uh, historically funded as well. You'll see in this year's budget, we have multi-year procurement for three weapons, um, for AMRAM, uh, JASM ER, and uh, RASM. I'd look at being able to do that. I'd also look at the aspects of the things we put into the operational imperatives. You know, one of those that, uh, uh, for the Air Force, is a collaborative combat aircraft to be able to ensure that uh, continues forward. I would also hi highlight our, our nuclear portfolio to ensure it stays fully funded. And then uh, as we work with uh, uh, small companies and other parts of the uh, commercial sector, the ability with the legislative proposal that uh, Secretary Kendall outlined, um, it's tough to keep them alive and those good ideas alive over two years. And so to be able to bring those forth with that legislative proposal 
provides that uh, opportunity to look at the advanced capabilities that we can bring into the Air Force much faster than we do today. Okay. My time's expired. Chair, and I recognize the ranking member. Thank you. Um, Mr. Secretary, can you talk a little bit about the programs, how important it is to discontinue some of the programs you're discontinuing? We frequently have those fights here and just want to sort of cue members up. Again, modernization is so important. Um, what are you discontinuing and why is it important that we try not to get in your way? Uh, continuing, I think, was the word. Uh, yeah, well, pro programs that you're, you're terminating to order fun. You know, the, well, terminate is the wrong word. Um, Divesting. To, Right, divesting from certain programs, shutting down certain, certain so you, you do that in order to free up the money for a lot of the investments. That, uh, it's the certainly true. Well, I'll start with the A-10, which I mentioned in my opening comments. Yeah. It's over 40 years old. It's a, it was, in its time, a great aircraft that served us well. I was an advocate for that program for a long time, uh, but it doesn't scare China. Uh, we, we, it still has some limited utility, but we have to get on with things which are going to be more capable relative to the threat. Uh, we have some other divestitures that uh, we're taking out the rest of the AWACS, J-STARS, so we can transition to a new generation of centers which are more survivable. Uh, some of that will, of course, be in space. Some of that will be programs like the E-7. Um, we are taking out, uh, as an efficiency, basically, the, uh, another tranche of T-1 trainers, and we're moving to a more efficient training program that doesn't rely on that intermediate trainer uh, step as part of the process. Uh, we are taking out the oldest F-22, something we asked for last year. Those are not fully combat capable. They're only used for training, would not be deployed in wartime uh, against the pacing challenge, and, and basically represent a savings of about $2 billion that we can turn to things that would be much more, much more effective. So I think those are kind of at the top of the list. There are a few others that are being replaced as a result of recapitalization primarily, F-15Cs and uh, KC-135s, for example. So does that get to your question? Yeah, that's very good. General Brown, did you want to comment on any part of that and how important it is for the Air Force? Well, it's not only the uh, Secretary Kendall did an excellent job of laying out all the uh, programs, um, and I w there's not anything else I think I would add to that. But what I would add is it's the airmen. Uh, the aspect of the airmen that actually operate and maintain the platforms that uh, those that want to hold on are the same airmen that will operate and maintain the things we're trying to uh, buy. And so we have a disconnect. And they've got to be trained in order to operate those new platforms. And so we have to phase that out. And if we continue to hold on to things, then those airmen are tied up and we can't move to the future uh, to those uh, additional capabilities we're trying to invest in. So we've got to do all that together uh, to help us move forward. Terrific. Thank you, General. Ge General Saltzman, when it comes to <clears throat> space launch, the chairman again mentioned you know, the modernization efforts there. I know we're coming up on, I think, uh, the, the phase three awards for the next series of launches. Um, competition's really important where that is concerned. And, and the advancements we've made just in the last, gosh, 15, little over 15 years now, and we used to just have one launch provider. Um, now there are multiple um, that are trying to get in. I just want to really emphasize the importance of trying to make sure that, that there's as much competition as possible. But can you talk a little bit about um, your phase three plans, how competition and the better use of commercial partnering is going to help get us a better, more cost-effective satellite infrastructure? Yes, sir. Thank you. I, I think the idea of two lanes for uh, space launch providers is, is a solid way of both protecting the access to space for our most 
heavily mission-assured missions, our lowest risk tolerance missions, while opening up an avenue for highly competitive emerging launch providers to also have business and be able to conduct launches and prove themselves as providers. Um, we have to thread the needle a little bit because we have to have assured access for the national security launches, but we want to maximize competition for those emerging providers. I think a two-lane approach is a nice balance of those competing requirements. General Chance Saltzman, the Chief of Space Operations at a House Armed Services Committee hearing on the Air Force and Space Force budget request for fiscal 2024. You also heard the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General C.Q. Brown, and the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. You can find a link to the entire hearing in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. The FedGov Today podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show on any of those platforms so you don't miss the next episode of FedGov Today with Francis Rose coming next Tuesday. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be right back.